you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 36. That's going to be the text that I'm going to preach out of this morning and just uh, enjoy that time together. This week has been kind of a hectic week for all of us. Obviously, getting a text on Monday afternoon from Patrick and hearing about Tyler's condition and then doing preparation for that and, and having all of these other things going on this week just in, in at work and with family. And uh, it's been a very, very busy week. And then this morning in Family Bible Hours, we got to spend time together as a family just hearing about all of the things that are going on in the lives of the body. It's been a, it's been a week, and we have so much to pray for for one another, for each other, and obviously as a body just lifting each other up and encouraging one another. And it's just very interesting how that works in life and how we look at wanting to honor God and live for Christ and live a Christian life in a secular society. And we look around us and we see all of the corruption, all of the depravity, and all of the turmoil that is going on all around us. And, and it begs the question, what in the world is going on? Why is all of this happening in the world? Why is a baby born with a hole between its heart, between the septum, between the two ventricles? Why do people get sick with that are already sick and they get sicker? Why do all of these things happen? And ultimately, the only thing that we can point to is sin. It's the curse. It is a result of Adam's choice. And yet when the world looks at those same events, they don't have an answer for that. They don't understand why toddlers and two-year-olds and three-year-olds can be bribed with 16 graham crackers to do bad things. They don't understand that. They know that it works, but they don't understand why it works. They don't have an answer for that. Thankfully, we do. We live in a secular society that, and especially with this current political landscape, is just getting worse. It's not getting better. And yet, as Christians, what are we to do with that? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to react? I think the Bible tells us. The biblical response to a secular society and to secular pressure is to redeem the society. We have to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus prayed that for his disciples in John 17, that I am leaving them, Lord. I am leaving them, Father, in the world, but they are not of the world. Protect them. Don't take them out of the world, but protect them while they're in the world so that they can do your work. He prayed that for the, the 11 that were with him. And by extension, ultimately, he even prayed that for us so that we would be able to do the same thing. Paul writes in Romans 12, too, to be transformed by the renewing of, the, of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world. He also writes in Colossians 2, 8, don't be taken captive through philosophy and empty deception, through worldly pleasures, if you will. Paul writes in his letters to pursue Christ, cling to Christ alone. That is the focus and then obviously Jesus exhorted his disciples, abide in him as he is in the Father, John 13. Well, seeing this secularization of our society happening so rapidly around us, other men throughout history saw the same thing. 
Francis Schaeffer back in the 60s and 70s asked the question, how are we to then live? And, and established a school that would teach young men and women to do exactly that, live a Christian life in a secular society. Um, I have this, this newfangled device in my pocket now. It's this. Um, I have no idea how to use it, but apparently it takes things from the atmosphere, and then you put a plug in here, and I put a thing in my tape deck, and all of a sudden I can listen to Al Mohler. And Al Mohler has a podcast every single day called The Briefing. And what Al Mohler does on his briefing is talk about how Christians can engage a secular society from a biblical perspective. How to live with a biblical worldview. And I love that. All of a sudden, that's what I listen to. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear about how can I, as a Christian, live in such a way that I can engage my culture at work. I can engage the culture at Starbucks. I can engage wherever I am from a biblical point of view, from a biblical perspective, and live out a biblical worldview. Well, guess what? David, 3,000 years ago, sitting on the throne of Israel, saw the secularization of his society, and he wrote a psalm about it. He wrote a psalm. David was complaining about the moral corruption of his generation when he wrote this psalm that we're going to look at this morning. This is nothing new that we're experiencing. This is not new at all. David wrote about it. Francis Schaeffer talked about it. Al Mohler talks about it on a daily basis. We are living increasingly in a world that is becoming more and more hostile to the gospel, to the truth contained in this book. But we need to know how to live. We need to know what to do and how to do it. Today, what I'd like to do is look at three pictures illustrating the depravity of man and the glory of God so that we will see our need for the gospel. The gospel is all there is. That's all that matters. And that's what we need to see. We need to see that every single day. And these three pictures are this. Ready? Picture number one is a picture of the wicked. Picture number two is a picture of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And number three is a picture of the redeemed. So let's read Psalm 36 together. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For the choir director... A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of abundance of your house, and, and you give them to drink of the water of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, 
In your light, we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. When the Psalter was arranged, it was arranged very systematically. This psalm does not fall here randomly. Psalm 35, 36, and 37 are a group of psalms that belong together in this section of the Psalter. Psalm 35, verse 8, contains the prayer that the wicked would fall into destruction. You heard Psalm 36, 12 declare that the doers of iniquity have fallen, and Psalm 37, 2 confirms that evildoers will wither quickly like the grass, while Psalm 37, 9 adds that evildoers will be cut off. All three psalms indicate that the prayers of the righteous will be answered. God will execute his justice, and therefore the godly need not fret over the wicked. We have nothing to worry about from a wicked and perverse generation. This psalm affirms the integrity of God, that he will judge the wicked. It begins with this superscript that I read to you guys. And in the Hebrew, this is actually verse 1 of the psalm for the choir director. This song was meant to be sung. This song was meant to be sung in corporate worship in the temple, in the tabernacle, by the people of Israel to God, their covenant God. And so this was something that, they, that David intended to be sung regularly, to be reminded of what's going on in the world so that they would be assured that God is still in control. One of my favorite bands, Third Day, actually used this psalm as a foundation for one of their songs, and it's a phenomenal song. If you have a chance on YouTube to look it up, uh, they did a great job with this psalm. What I'd really like to see is the Sons of Korah do this. The Sons of Korah are an Australian band that put the psalms to music, and they are amazing. Maybe someday. They've done Psalm 35 and 37, you know? Then he says, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. That phrase, the servant of the Lord, when relating to David, it occurs only two times in the entire Old Testament, here in this psalm and in Psalm 18. David was seen as God's friend. David was a man of war, and that's why he couldn't build the temple. We don't usually think about David as a friend of God, and yet that's exactly, or a servant of God, I'm sorry, a servant of God, and yet that's exactly who David was, and that's how he viewed himself. I'm nothing but a servant, even when he was a king. So, here's where we begin to see these three pictures that David paints for us. This first picture, this picture of the wicked, number one, we see this in verse, verses 1 to 4. David gives us seven different elements of the unregenerate reprobate that draw a picture for us. And the first element is that there is no fear of God. This first part of this first picture is that there is no fear of God. These people are self-deceived. This is self-deception. This is uh, willful unbelief in the part of these people. This verse, especially the first part of this verse in Hebrew, 
is very difficult to translate. It's, it's obscure language. It's, it's just, you look at multiple different translations and everybody seems to get it different. And it's very hard to understand exactly what David is trying to convey to us here in this passage. Even the way the language is phrased, the syntax, the way the words are organized, is, occurs only here in the Old Testament. So even the grammar is unique to this verse. It's not normal. It's as if transgression is given a personality. It's just as if transgression is personified and is now here speaking to us. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David is given special insight into the condition of the heart of the wicked. And he essentially writes that sin is the innermost motive or impulse of all that the wicked thinks or does. This is reminiscent of the days of Noah in Genesis 6. Back in the days of Noah, when God saw humanity in Genesis 6, he said the Lord was sorry. Moses writes, the Lord, was saw, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. Every thought was only evil continually. And that's what David shows us here about the wicked, about the sinner, about the unregenerate reprobate. And it is so bad that the fear of God has no place in his heart. And to him... It has no object, God has no objective exist, existence. It's as if God should command adoration from the wicked person, and the wicked person says, why? Psalm 14, 1. The wicked has said in his heart, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Paul uses those phrases in, in Romans 3 when he's talking about the depravity of man and the need for salvation. Sin is bound up in the heart of a child. Sin is bound up in all of our hearts, and we need a Savior to save us from that sin. And that's the problem in all of us. The heart or the innermost being is where the idols are produced. Calvin said, the human heart is nothing more than an idol factory. In our home groups, we're reading this book by Brad Bigney, The Gospel Treason. And Brad Bigney defines an idol this way. He says, an idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. And I just think that's such a profound definition of an idol. I think it's a great definition. An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. And it can be a good thing. As I began thinking about just even idols in my own heart, I realized at one point I made ministry an idol to the point that ministry was what I lived for. Ministry was all I wanted to do. Ministry was everything. And I realized, looking back on that, how bad that was to the detriment of my own spiritual health and that of my family. Thankfully, the Lord allowed me to see that and make some radical changes and, and do some things that 
I do believe, preserved family life, spiritual life, and ministry life in my life. Idols are things that can be good that become bad. And that's what sin does. It turns these good things into evil things. Because there's no fear of God. Proverbs 1.7, Solomon writes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Paul echoes this in Romans 1. When he writes in Romans 1.18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And then over in Romans 3, verse 18, he says and quotes this verse, There is no fear of God before their eyes. This word for fear is not also, it's also not just the normal word for fear that would require a response of awe and reverence. It's not that Hebrew word. This word for fear is the word that carries with it the idea of terror or dread. It's the idea that you walk around the corner, walking home from school, and you're nine years old, and as you walk and turn that corner, the 14-year-old bully of the neighborhood is standing there waiting for you. It's a terrifying sensation. And that's the word that David chose here. And these people don't care one iota about that issue. They don't care about final judgment. There is no fear of final judgment. It's as if they say, I don't need to confess sin because I've never sinned. There are societies, there are entire cultures in the world today that have no word in their vocabulary for sin. They don't even know what sin is. And yet we know that we are sinners. And we need a Savior. The second element is that he flatters himself in his sin. The second element, he flatters himself in his sin. The ESV does an excellent job in translating this verse. And I'd like to read it to you out of the ESV. He says, For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. That is an excellent translated translation. This is an insensitivity to sin. So much so that he just thinks, the wicked person just thinks that they can continue to sin and just get away with it. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to find out. It's all a secret. But it's not. The wicked person continues to heap more and more sin onto his sin so that he may hate God and man instead of loving them. He turns everything he ought to love into an object of hate. And more than that, he lives and moves in hatred as in his own proper element. This may be a harsh indictment of the sinner, but sinners love their sin. They love their sin. And remember last week when Patrick was preaching and he talked about objections to the gospel and objections to the Bible. And if you give me a list of all of your objections and I'm able to answer every single objection to your satisfaction, would you still... Would you then submit to the word of God and call Christ your Savior and Lord? And he has yet to have anybody 
say yes. Because the bottom line is sinners love their sin. They have a determined disbelief to the truth of God. They become their own moral standard. And that's what they want. They want to be the arbiter of what is right and wrong in their life. Spurgeon said, to smooth over one's conscience is to smooth over one's path to hell. It's as if you make this slope to hell and it's coated with Teflon. And your shoes are also Teflon and you just slide and you can't stop. Given enough time, every hidden sin will come to light. And we see that over and over and over and over again in Christian ministry, do we not? All of these men and women and and individuals who are prominent church pastors, who are prominent preachers, ultimately, next thing you know, they're stepping down, they're getting dismissed from their churches, from their denominations, recalled from the mission field because of sin, hidden sin, that they thought they could get away with, that they thought they could hide, that they thought that, well, the blood of Christ will cover this sin, and I'll commit it anyway. That's the picture of wickedness. Look at what happens to the man who's fallen prey to the dominion of sin. These next five elements are a result of these first two. It's as if David said these first two are the big ones, and then here's the result, these next five things. And he gives us a little bit more information. Number three, he speaks wicked lies as truth. He speaks wicked lies to truth. We see this in verse 3. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He does this to justify his sin. Don't we see that today? We always, we want, we get confronted with sin. We know we did something wrong, but we say something to justify our actions. Because we want to be justified in our own eyes. The sinner, the wicked person's words when awake are evil and wicked and absolutely the opposite of that which is truly good. We are in the midst of a political campaign right now for president of the United States that is full of campaign promises, right? And yet, we all know that there is really no truth to those promises. It's as if we just expect to be lied to and we're okay with it. Beloved, it's not okay. It is not okay. This fourth element that David reveals is that, number four, they cease to be wise. Look at the second half of verse three. He has ceased to be wise and do good. There is an inability to do good. It's not that he just stops doing good. He's unable to do good. Wisdom is living skillfully and applying the word of God to your life, thinking biblically about things around you and interpreting events through the lens of Scripture and having a biblical worldview so that you can react rightly. Don't be surprised when sinners sin. Don't be surprised by depravity from people who don't know the Lord. Number five, he makes new ways to be evil. Verse four, your loving, I'm sorry, he he plans wickedness upon his bed. This is a real commitment to sin because even at night when he's sleeping, he's dreaming up new ways to enjoy his depravity. This is a real commitment to sin. Next, number six, he pursues wrong actions. Not only does he think them up, but then he sets himself on a path that is not good. 
This is to delight in sin. He is adamant about his path in the opposite direction to that which is good and right and pleasing to God. Proverbs 16, verse 29 says this. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. And then Isaiah 65. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 7, but listen to verse 2 especially. Isaiah writes, I permitted myself to be sought. This is God speaking. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here, I, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. This is the verse I want you to hear within the context of all these verses. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. This is the kind of God that we have, who loves us, who's reaching for us, even when we are wicked. A people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh, and the, the broth of unclean meat is on their pot, in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom, both their iniquities and the iniquities of their father, fathers together, says the Lord. Because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills, therefore I will measure their former work into their bosom. They're not going to get away with it. There is going to come a day of judgment. There is going to come a day of reckoning. Even though he has seared his conscience because of this seventh element, that he loves sin. We see that in the end of verse 4. He does not despise evil. In his inability to reject the hatred of sin, he is not able to do anything good. His conscience is seared against evil. There is not a trace of, of aversion to evil. There is not a trace of aversion to sin found in his life. He loves his sin with all of his soul. Psalm 1 verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the wicked. And the Lord will deal with them each in the end. I think Patrick's sermon last week was absolutely phenomenal in just giving us a picture of the bondage of our wills. It's in bondage to the legal guilt and divine condemnation. It's in bondage to the love of the darkness. It's in bondage to a hatred of the supremacy of God. It's in bondage to spiritual death. And it's in bondage to the blindness to the glory of God. That's where we are as sinners. Unregenerate reprobate. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up with parents who loved the Lord and served the church. I grew up 
reading the Bible. I grew up memorizing Scripture. I went to Christian elementary school, Christian junior high, Christian high school. I understood the Bible. I believed the Bible. I believed what it said was true. I believed that all of these things were accurate and correct. I made a profession of faith. I got baptized. I did the classes. I went to Sunday school. I could answer the questions. I could memorize you. Ask me a question about the Bible. Boom, I've got the answer for you. But when you looked at my life, there was no evidence of that belief. There was no evidence. I was no better than this person right here. I was no better. Thankfully, David here makes a 180-degree turn. And he presents a completely contrasting picture of God from the wicked person. And thank you, David, for showing us this God. Because this is the God that we need. He gives us a super eminence of Yahweh's mercy and faithfulness. Appealing to creation for his inspiration. Earlier up on the slide, when I came in, Amber had a picture up of Yosemite Valley from Tunnel View with El Capitan in the foreground and Half Dome in the background with snow on Half Dome. And it was just awe-inspiring. We're going to see a picture of that in this psalm even. And David appeals to creation to inspire awe in us for God's love toward us. This second picture that David paints for us is the picture of Yahweh. And I use that term very, that name very uh, intentionally. This is the covenant name of God. This is the God not... This is the name of God for his people. Yahweh is his name, and we can call on him by name. That is the God who loves us. And it is painted, this picture is painted by his chesed. And that's another Hebrew word I'm using very intentionally because you need to hear this word. It's like the the word in our English Bibles, propitiation. It's a very theological word. It's a very rich word. It's a very deep word. We need to understand that this word is not easily translated by one single English word because it is so deep and full of meaning that we cannot completely understand it. This chesed of God is his gracious, merciful, steadfast, loyal, covenantal, loving kindness that he he displays towards us because we cannot display that same kind of love back to him. He is so perfect. He is so holy. He is so consistent that he will never change his attitude towards us in that love. Thanks be to God for that love because we need it in a big way. So, David paints this picture in two formats. The first format is that this love, this chesed of Yahweh is unlimited. And we see that in verses 5 and 6. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. There are no limits or boundaries for God's love towards his people. Psalm 103, verse 11, puts it this way. He says, again, David, he says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. 
it transcends all human thought, all human desire, all of our imagination to even begin to comprehend this love, this kind of love, this kind of attitude that God has towards us. The first way that he describes this unlimited love is in faithfulness. His faithfulness is greater than we can imagine. It extends to the heavens. It's boundless. It is governed by the promises of God, and it's being found in the love of God. The second way that David describes this is that his righteousness is awe-inspiring. Verse 6, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. It's like looking at the Sierra Nevada mountains and seeing Mount Whitney just pointing up in the sky. It's like seeing Mount McKinley in Denali National Park in Alaska, just this incredible mountain out on the horizon. Or in the Himalayas, Mount Everest. It is awe-inspiring. But what David does here is he says, your loving kindness extends to the heavens. It's unlimited. And it's like a mountain. And then he says, your judgments. Number three, your judgments are foundational. Your judgments are like the great deep. It's like the mountains, the roots of the mountains that goes down into the depths of the sea. And he uses this juxtaposition of height and depth to say that this is something that we will never, ever comprehend. That's how great God's love is for us. It is totally amazing. I think Paul understood this when he wrote in Romans 11, this doxology. At the end of the theological treatise of the book of Romans, before he gets into the practical application section, he writes this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And lastly, in this picture of his loyal love, he preserves life according to his will. We see it in his extension of his faithfulness, his righteousness, his judgment, and then his preservation of life. Here, it's reminiscent of the days of Noah, where Noah and his family were preserved on that ark because of the will of God, because of the eternal decree of God that he was going to preserve life. God receives the glory and salvation through judgment. And God receives that glory. Well, the second format David uses to show us this, this loyal love is that the chesed of Yahweh is valuable and worth having. Verses 7 to 9, he says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see life. It is valuable beyond all treasures and how precious it is to him who knows how to prize that love. It is precious. This is crystal clear language. This is in the Hebrew so clear that we can see it and how David describes its value with three word pictures. 
this first word picture is this refuge that we see here in, uh, in uh, verse 7. The children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's the picture of a mother hen with her chicks, with her wings spread out, gathering her chicks underneath her to protect them from any thunderstorm or hailstorm or rain or snow or whatever, so that he preserves the chicks to her detriment. That's the picture of our God. That is the picture of how he protects us, how he wants to be able to hide us, preserve us, keep us from temptation, keep us from tribulation, strengthen us, allow us to be in his protection. But what do we want to do? We, we chafe at that. We want to struggle with that. We want to get free of that. And when in that thinking we're free, what happens? Trials, troubles, tribulations, testing, temptation. Enjoy being in the protection of God's wings. Secondly, it's described as a flowing fountain of life whose source is from God alone. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 2, again, an indictment of the people of his day in verse 13. He says, God speaking, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's like the woman at the well in John 4. She comes to the well and Jesus is there and he asks her to give me a drink. Simple question, give me a drink. And she's just dumbfounded. She doesn't even know how to respond to that. And yet he says to her, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask me, And I would give you water that you would never thirst again. He was talking about that spiritual water, the spiritual life of redemption. And she longed for that. And through that conversation, ultimately, she was saved. And not only her, but that entire village was saved. Because that's where life comes from. And thirdly, an illuminating light of life emanates from God alone. We see that all throughout the Gospel of John. In John 1, verses 6 through 13, he says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might be believed through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and, he, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were with His own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then later in John 8, Jesus says of himself, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That is the light of salvation. That is regeneration. And when I was about 20 years old, it was like that light bulb went off in my mind. All of a sudden, God used a man that I knew was not saved, that I knew was not a believer, that I knew was under condemnation, was under the wrath of God, that I knew his judgment was sure and that he was going to be cast into hell. And I asked him, you want to go to church with me on Sunday? And he looked at me very quizzically. 
Because he knew my life. He knew what my life was like in college. He knew what I was about. He knew what I did. He knew how I acted. And he said, why are you going to church? And I said, well, because I'm a Christian, and that's what Christians do. 20 years old, mature Christian, right? Right. Okay, this man looks at me and says, really? Huh. You and me, we're no different. We do the same things. We hang out together. We're at the same events. We're at the same activities. We're doing the same thing. I must be a Christian too. I don't need to go to church. And I looked at him and I thought, if you and I are the same, I'm in trouble. And that's what God used to shine the light onto my own heart, to illuminate my eyes so that I would see my sin, so that I would repent and confess of that sin, so that I would accept and trust Christ alone for my salvation and not be under God's wrath. God used that kind of light from a pagan to save me. And when that happened and I went back and hung out with those friends... Guess how they responded to me? Dude, what's with this Jesus stuff? We don't want that. I didn't get to hang out with them much longer. And all of a sudden, I realized that my life was now sold out. It's clearly different. It was the 180 turn that we see in this psalm. From wickedness to Christ. From a path of sin to a path of righteousness. Am I perfect? No. Do I still sin? Obviously. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Because that's what we have. And then, in this psalm, we have a prayer. David shifts gears again, and it's like there's a third format for this picture. He shifts gears again and then presents a prayer. And this prayer is the heart of the believer asking precisely that, which the heart of God is prepared to grant. It is aligning our wills with God's will so that we pray what God wants us to pray. It is a picture, this third picture is a picture of the redeemed, of the prayer of the redeemed. It is drawn out with five requests. Look at these five requests. Number one, to receive that chesed. I want your loving kindness. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you. Please give it to me. Don't keep it away from me. I want this love that I cannot even begin to comprehend. I want this love that is beyond my reach. I want this love that is incomprehensible, that is higher than the heavens, that is deeper than the deeps of the sea and the mountain, roots of the mountains. I want this love. Please continue this past mercy in my life. Second request is to receive righteousness and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Also, continuing this past mercy, I need God's righteousness because I don't have a righteousness of my own. I have nothing good in me. I need God's righteousness on me. I need the righteousness of Christ to be placed on me so that my sin is taken off and put on Christ at that cross. Paul tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That great exchange, my sin for Christ's righteousness. What did I contribute to my salvation? 
Nothing but my sin. Nothing but my sin. Third request, keep me humble. Keep me humble. Let not the foot of pride come upon me. Pride was and is the devil's sin. Pride is at the root of almost every sin we commit. The pride that we think we can be our own arbiter, that we know better than God what we ought to do and what we ought to have and what we ought to be able to pursue. God is a good God. He is a good father. He gives good gifts to his children. And Tyler is a good gift to Patrick and Hannah. Tyler is perfect because it is for our good and God's glory in Tyler that we see. Whenever we see Tyler, we see the glory of God at work. Fourthly, keep me close. Let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. Don't let the world and what's going on in the world scare you because God is going to keep you close. We have the privilege of abiding in Christ like Jesus talked to his disciples in John 13. Abide in Christ. Be part of that vine. Be a branch in that vine. Be tied in to the Father. And then fourthly, or fifthly, I'm sorry, lastly, Thankfully, we are not judged like the wicked. We don't endure God's wrath in judgment. We have a judgment of com, of commendation. Hear that? Commendation. We are going to be commended for what we do for the Lord. Because God has prepared good works for us so that we might walk in them. We have commendation. The wicked condemnation that's what they will receive in his justice in his holiness in his righteousness god will judge the wicked and they will receive condemnation the justice and wrath of god has been poured out on those who have not turned to god for salvation and god is glorified in salvation through judgment. We've seen in this psalm three distinct pictures created for us by David about the sinfulness of sin and the glory of God. This should cause us to preach the gospel to ourselves and not ourselves only, but to preach the gospel, to share the gospel to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, to our co-workers who don't know the Lord. We've seen that the wicked are irretrievably lost and degenerate. Only the grace of God can save them. They cannot save themselves. We've seen God's love extends to everyone everywhere. It is great. It is merciful. It is abounding. And it is amazing. And we have seen that being in fellowship with God and in his presence involves the highest of spiritual delights. And John Piper famously says, God is most satisfied and God is most delighted in us when we are most satisfied in him. Be satisfied in God. Be satisfied in Christ. Come to Christ. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, come to Christ. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should have everlasting life. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have not fallen on his feet and begged him to take your sin, please do that. Come talk to me, talk to Tim, talk to any one of us. We would be happy to talk to you about what that conversion looks like. Come to Jesus. Lord, I praise you for your love and your faithfulness. Father, preserve us in the shadow of your wings. Thank you for allowing me to delight my soul in you and give grace to strengthen all of us to do that more and more. Please continue your chesed, your loving kindness, your loyal love to me, to us. Almighty God, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with a truly thankful heart we may show forth your praise. And not only with our lips, but in our lives by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all of our days. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.